And welcome into the Duck Territory podcast. I'm Matt Preem, and Eric Scopel is across the way. Hi, guys. And we're breaking down Saturday's pretty big win uh, for the Oregon Duck football program, 41-20 over the Utah Utes. Uh, things got kicked off right away for this Oregon football program. A, a sight for sore eyes, you, you could almost say, because the Ducks got the ball first. And they marched down the field for a 11-play, 75-yard drive, five minutes. Another one of those 75-yard pl- drives, Eric, uh, ends with Cam, uh, Cam McCormick catching a five-yard pass on a play action from Braxton Burmeister. Burmeister's first career touchdown pass, I believe. Second. I second. Think. He threw one to uh, Breland. That's right, against Washington State. So second touchdown pass, both, ironically enough, to both tight ends for the Ducks. Well, so uh, since Justin Herbert's been out, the, the, no wide receivers caught a touchdown pass, so I'm sure they're, they're ready, <laughs> waiting for that to happen, because uh, it's been uh, Breland twice and McCormick once. Uh, but then the Utes go down the field, and they answer in the second quarter early with a field goal uh, to make it 7-3, and then the Ducks tack on their own, and it's 10-3, and then probably the play of the game that kind of gives Oregon some separation. You were there um, for, for a reporting standpoint. I was out of town. Uh, but I was paying attention to it, and I felt like, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, this was the pivotal play. This is kind of what set things up. Uh, Utah was driving, and Ugo Amadi stripped yep. Darren mm. Carrington, of, of all players, on a pass and returned it for, uh, what was it, a 47-yard fumble return for a touchdown it to was, put the Ducks uh, up 17-3. to It was probably, it, the fact that it was Carrington made it just about as poetic as possible, and then the fact that it, it d- directly kind of gave Oregon... Well, they're both, by the way, that, they've got their 17th point on that drive, and it directly led to what was, I guess, the most scoring output they've had since Herbert's been out. So yeah. it was a huge play in terms of the game, but also I think just from you could not have scripted it any better if you were an Oregon fan in terms of who made the error, uh, how everything played out, and kind of the way it, it kind of forecasted the way the rest of the game would go. Um, Carrington had a big game. Obviously, we know that uh, nine catches, 130 yards, was booted every time he touched the football. But uh, that that play right there almost kind of wipes away any positive impact he had, just because it was such a, a crucial turnaround for for the program and for the Ducks there in terms of just getting some momentum, which they sorely needed. Yeah, it was. We've, we've talked week by week. It seems like defense needing needing to create turnovers right. for Oregon to have a chance. They got one, and not only did they get one to flip the field, but they returned it right back down for a touchdown. And first, first defensive touchdown, and first non-offensive touchdown since Tony Brooks James special teams touchdown to open the wow. season. So they they needed they needed one of those plays for a while. We've been kind of waiting for it, and, and it came in a big moment. Uh, and, and then uh, just before half, Utah drives the field seven plays, fifty nine yards, and we were talking before we were recording it. Big thing for this defense, they gave up some yards, but they held when. Utah got inside the 30, mm-hmm. and the Utes couldn't score a touchdown and instead had to settle for a 34-yard field goal to go into half 17-6. to And, you know, they scored a touchdown on that drive. Yeah. We're, we're talking a completely different ball game because Utah gets the ball back to start the third quarter. And if, if they go in down 17-10, to 10, a touchdown ties, ties it up, yep. and it's a whole new ball game. And, and that leads right into the second half there where Utah does have probably their best drive of the game, drives it right down the field. In the first half, I think they had negative three rushing yards, and they there were a couple big runs in that drive. Huntley got out of the pocket and had a big run to to set up what was probably the most bizarre touchdown I can remember, <laughs> at least in a game Oregon was involved with in a while. It's like 
Oregon defense finally holds. You talked to Alex to go for it on fourth and two at the two, and the, the, the play works out perfectly to Oregon defense. They, they get to the quarterback, they deflect the ball, and a left tackle laying on his back catches the ball and has it pinned to the turf, and they call it a touchdown. <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> really bizarre. I mean, like it, it, I'd be curious to see. We get, we'll get Levitt's response later this week on this and for some of the defensive players if they've ever seen anything. I mean, that was it felt a little demoralizing because yeah. they did everything right on that play, and yet somehow Utah gets one of the weirdest touchdowns you'll ever see. Yeah, Tyler Huntley is credited with the touchdown pass of one yard to Darren Puallo, yeah. uh offensive tackle for the Utes. Uh, so, so far this season we have seen <laughs> – uh, Troy Die make a strip while he's on the on the ground just throwing his hand up, just yeah, almost blindly, almost blindly and right. stripping a ball. And now we've seen an offensive tackle on the ground raise his hands up and catch a deflected pass for a touchdown. And it was also you'll get to it in a second here another very bizarre scoring play later on in the, in the third quarter. Uh, that that makes it 17-13 Oregon uh, with 11 minutes and 36 seconds left in the third quarter, and the Ducks. Uh, Net, very next drive. Mm-hmm. This is what you needed Crucial. to see. It's big. You needed yep. points. It doesn't matter how they come, whether it's field goal or touchdown. You just needed points to keep Utah at bay. Uh, Aiden Snyder kicks a 38-yard field goal to push the lead to 20 to 13. Uh, makes it a full touchdown score lead. Uh-huh. Gives you a little bit of a cushion. Oregon's defense gets a stop again, and then uh, the, the Ducks go down the field and. Jacob Berlin catches a 22-yard touchdown pass from Charles Nelson, and quite honestly, this is the play of the year for Oregon football. Right. If yeah, if Ugo Amadi's strip touchdown earlier in the first half was kind of the play of the game, maybe in terms of getting momentum, this was the play of the year. It was so bizarre. It was it, Nelson should have been down in the backfield. I mean, he was it looked like he was dead to rights, got nicked up, and, and somehow managed to stand on his feet. Lops one of the end zone, and Breland, who's about six five, out leaps a couple defensive players, a la Stanford. Uh, tight ends against Oregon, Oregon a few weeks ago where they had so much success to that play, has success here, and and Oregon takes a 27-13 lead and really kind of never looked back. Yeah, that capped off a four-play, 75-yard drive to put the Ducks up 14 points, 27-13 with three minutes and basically 30 seconds left in the third. One, uh, one, one quick note on that, which I thought was interesting that we learned in postgame. It sounds like the players made like scripted this play. Weird. Charles Nelson said he, the one thing he'd never done at Oregon was throw a touchdown pass, so he wanted to, he wanted to throw a pass. And Jacob Breland said that the one that, that watching Stanford tape, he realized that they should do that because he did that in high school. He had a lot of jump balls, and so they talked to Tiger about it, and they basically said, "All right, let's let's script a play for it." And so they <laughs> practiced it exactly once in practice, played it in the game, and it worked. So wow! It's just kind of a weird behind the story thing we learned after the game. I thought that was interesting. And then probably the 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 game clincher was Oregon's next drive to start the fourth quarter with 12 minutes and 24 seconds left. Uh, the Ducks go six plays, 85 yards, in just two minutes and 18 seconds, but it's capped off with a 23-yard touchdown run from Tony Brooks-James. And a guy who we've been waiting all year for Tony Brooks-James to kind of bust out, and he finished the game with 105 yards on just six carries. He scored a touchdown. Kind of the game changer for Oregon's offense because you had the bruising style of Freeman who went for 139. You had Kanai Benoit giving in, kind of doing the same of what, what Freeman was and finishing with 71 yards and a touchdown. But Tony Brooks James' speed on the outside really changed the game, and that was how we scored on this play. One cut and gone. Right, and I thought, so, you know, coming in with the season, we talked about how great this Oregon backfield was, and we never really saw they had kind of that three headed monster with the guys you mentioned, and I wrote about this shortly after the game. And, it never really developed during the season. They never really seemed to get on the same page. If Benoit and Freeman had a good game, Brooks James struggled and vice versa. And 
finally to see it all working was was exactly, I think, kind of the way this team had to win this game. They weren't going to win it throwing it, and I think they had nine completions and I think one pass to a receiver for more than 10 yards, which is a pretty crazy stat. You score 41 points and have one, basically one pass down the field to a wide receiver. But like you said, most of the success came off tackle, which is a little bit different from the way they've had success early on in the season running. I'm, I'm sure they saw on tape something with Utah on the edge there that they're susceptible there. And you saw a ton of runs off right tackle, a ton of runs off left tackle running behind uh, Tyrell Crosby and Calvin Throckmorton. And where earlier in the season this was kind of a smash mouth between the tackles team. They went off tackle and, and had a lot of success with kind of any of those three guys. I think all three of those guys had probably runs of over 30 yards where they just ran off the tackle. And, yep. and, and you saw Brooks James there score on that one. He had, I think, like a 56-yarder earlier in the first or the second half. To, that, that also similarly was just kind of off tackle and uses that speed. Utah kicks in a 29-yard 29 29-yard touchdown pass from Tyler Huntley to uh, Siosi Wilson. Uh, to make it 34-20 Oregon with 9 minutes and 57 seconds to play in the game. And Oregon quickly kind of erased any doubt in this one uh, when when they got a defensive stop. And then Kniven Wan, after after a defensive stop on fourth down inside Utah's uh, side of the field, uh, the Ducks then score two plays later from Kniven Wan, 21 yards out. For the final score, 41-20. Yeah. Uh, overall, this was just, I think, from afar, and then you were there. Yeah. We both agreed this was Oregon's best performance in a long time. Yeah. Pro- probably, in my opinion, probably since Cal. Yeah, I, I think you could probably argue maybe even since, maybe this might have been better than Cal and since Wyoming in terms of just a total team effort. I, I thought a ton of credit deserved to both the Oregon offensive line and the Oregon defensive front seven because... Oregon ran for 347 yards, yep. which is the most Utah had given up all year. And Oregon... It was going to be their highest rushing mark of the year, that, too. That, I had that in my story, and then they took those damn knees. And it went from, they <laughs> lost eight yards on knees because Burmeister took a couple extra steps back. And went 348 was the, the season uh, best that they had against Southern Utah. So they lost by one yard. They lost by one yard because of those knees. But, uh, no, uh, and, then, and then also on the other side of the ball, Utah ran for 91 yards, which was their lowest rushing output by about 30 yards this season. So... Um, both sides, both lines got it done. Um, Oregon won the battle in the trenches, which against Utah is something that doesn't necessarily happen very often. Utah is great up front, typically one of the the more stout defenses. And and this year, looking at the numbers, Utah came in in the top three in basically every defensive category, whether that's rushing, passing, um, and scoring defense and total defense. Um, and Oregon really kind of had their way with them. You know, I wrote earlier this week that they were a big boy defense, and that this was probably Oregon's biggest challenge in that regard. And then Oregon hangs 41 on them with basically no threat of a passing attack. So major credit deserved to the guys up front and the running backs for, for kind of keeping this one going. And I must say, I would say probably, to me, maybe the most impressive win in the season, just given the circumstances that are without Justin Herbert, who we should mention, did warm up was before the game. Up. There was some talk about maybe he, he would play, obviously did not play. Um, after the game, Taggart was a little bit kind of coy in terms of his availability. He was asked a couple times, was, was he available? And he said, no doctor told me he couldn't play. So I'm not sure why he didn't play. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, fortunately, the Ducks didn't appear to need him. Uh, Braxton Burmeister turned in probably his best game of the season. Didn't do a ton on the stat sheet, but probably basically kind of orchestrated the game plan as best as he could. Um, made one, you know, If you subtract... A botched handoff with Royce Freeman. It was basically a perfect game from him. You know, didn't didn't make too many mistakes. Didn't didn't try to do too much. Just kind of got the ball to the, his playmakers in space and let them do their work. 
couple things that really stood out, <coughs> excuse me, stood out to me was third down conversions. Um, this was a, you know, once Herbert went down with an injury, we said the Ducks needed to get in positions where they were in third and short because in third and long, they're not currently constructed without Justin Herbert at quarterback right. to consistently convert third and long situations. They had a couple where Burmeister scrambled to get big first downs. The first one primarily to set up Jacob uh, or Cam McCormick's touchdown. Yeah. Um, I think they had a couple other like third and sixes, third and sevens that they may have converted. Yeah. Uh, but overall, the Ducks were six of thirteen, mm-hmm. basically fifty percent. When you bat fifty percent, you're con- you're extending drives, you're keeping your offense on the field, you're getting that rhythm, and more importantly, you're giving your defense a chance to get a, catch a break when the way Oregon's constructed. They need to, you know, they're leaning on the defense to play, to play well and win these games. And then on the flip side, Oregon's defense, we've said it time and time again, when they have an opportunity to get off the field, they have to execute, they have to make those plays. And against Utah, they did. 4 of 14 on third down uh, for the Utes. Uh, they made one of just four fourth down conversions. So Oregon, you know, stopped them three different times, got off the field, which really just fuels that momentum. And then the other one for me is just red zone scores and red zone chances. The Ducks got into the red zone three times. They left with two touchdowns and one field goal. That's all. For Oregon, look, anytime you get within scoring range, you have to leave with points because points are at a premium for this football team right now. And then defensively, the Utes got in there uh, four times, but the critical thing here is they didn't score on one of them. And then on top of that, they had to settle for two field goals instead yep. of touchdowns. So you could you could tack on eight more points, and this you know game is entirely a different scenario. So overall, one of the better performances of the year for Oregon, yeah. and well-rounded performances. It wasn't just one group carrying the other group; it was the entire team effort. Absolutely, and you can add special teams there. Aiden Schneider called upon for two field goals. He hadn't tried more than one all season. He'd actually. I think missed two out of four tries coming in. He hits both of his pretty cleanly. Adam Stack punting had, I think, his second best punting game of the, of the season and had his longest punt. He had a 50-yarder. Um, hard to find many holes. I, I, I weekly I do my my, my, my position level right. grades on DuckTerritory.com. You go check it out. Typically, I have a position group in the Cs. I didn't have anybody below, I believe, a B in this game. Um, and, and honestly, just... A very impressive effort overall. Um, looking at the numbers here, ten tackles for loss, yep, four sacks. You know they were they made things very two difficult. forced fumbles. Yeah, made things very difficult for Utah on the flip side. I, I think I looked at it and I think Oregon had one play all day rushing for negative yards that wasn't a sack on forty five runs, which is pretty incredible. Tremendous. I mean that means basically that means you're winning the battle up front every time. Yep. You know, I mean it, people get tackled in the backfield when when the the play blows up and the offensive line you know doesn't. Um, create any holes and they kind of get bottled up back there. That just didn't happen. Um, it, Oregon was able to at least get a positive gain on basically every rushing attempt, and that's how you win football games. And I think you have to be encouraged with the effort. I think from a psychological perspective, you kind of wondered how a team would respond. Three straight losses, a couple of them kind of embarrassing fashion. Um, I'm, I'm sure they didn't feel great about leaving Los Angeles with that loss after yes. you know what we've seen from UCLA uh, this season. So to come out and and just seemed to not even seem to play with that kind of a care in the world in terms of, you know, hey, this is the reality of the season. This is kind of a must-win game for them. If they lose this game, they put themselves really uh, with their backs against the wall going in terms of trying to get bull eligible with three games left, two of which are against teams that are, are pretty darn good. Um, the Ducks' chances of now making a bull, I think, are, are, are much more uh, likely. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that here in a little bit. 
Um, but I, I went into this game, and defensively, I said there were a couple Ducks that needed to play really well. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Troy Dye was one of them. I did not include him in the group because that's pretty much a given. Oregon can't win games if, if Troy Dye doesn't play B-level football or better. Uh, and he, once again, had another double-digit tackle effort, led the Ducks in tackles with 11. But two guys I said needed to play really well were, were Thomas Graham and Arion Springs. And both those guys... Uh, Pretty much held Darren Carrington in check. He had some plays, mm-hmm. and he had nine catches for 130 yards. Right. But I don't think there was really any – there was maybe one big play he made, and everything else yeah. was just your typical six, you know, out route or, or crossing pattern, you know, 13, 12-yard gain for a first down. There were no the, explosion it's, plays. It's worth mentioning the one explosion play was an incredible diving catch. Where yes. It's like, okay, you're giving that. I and mean, he's a great player. He made a great individual play. He had full extension, 30 yards downfield. But you're right. Other than that, he didn't really do much. Uh, and, and then I think I also named Jalen Jokes, Lamar Winston, and Justin Hollins. Uh, those three guys uh, – Winston, just because he's having to play a Warriors mentality of hardly coming off the field in the last two weeks, and I felt like from the duck position, he was a critical guy against the passing game and the run game, and, and he finished uh, with four tackles, a tackle for loss. Uh, Justin Hollins and, and Jalen Jelks are critical guys for Oregon to set the edge, mm-hmm. kind of contain the quarterback, collapse the pocket, create pressure, uh, and both guys, once again, came up big. Hollins finished with four tackles, none for loss, but he was critical on, on keeping everything contained. And then Jalen Jelks uh, continues his season of just unbelievable football and, and finished with five tackles, one and a half sacks, two tackles for loss, yeah. um, was critical in just getting pressure on Huntley. And that was that was key because Huntley is a good athlete. He's a good quarterback. Uh, and you don't want Carrington and Huntley making plays because then that's when Utah's offense kind of gets into that mode of where they're really tough to stop. I thought I thought for the most part Oregon did a pretty good job with Huntley. He made a couple of great plays where I mean he's he's a talented player, he's a sophomore, he's gonna be a really good quarterback, I think. Um, but where he got out of the pocket and made some tough throws and, and ran the ball down the field. But for the most part I thought they did a good job of containing him, making his life difficult. You could tell at the end of the game there he, he had no time to do anything and when Oregon when Oregon was, you know, forced to get a stop, he was unable to kind of make anything happen. He was sacked a couple times late. Henry Mondu had a huge bull rush sack. Um, but yeah, I thought those guys on the edge did a great job, and I know that was a big part of the game plan. They talked about it all week about this guy. You can't let him get out on the edge and run. And, and they, with the exception of I think he, on the first drive of the second half there, where he had a one long run that almost scored, he really didn't do a whole lot running the football, and and, and that was a big key. And and overall, the, Utah just really couldn't find anything going in terms of on the ground. Darren Carrington's return. Many wondered what things were going to be like. We had a decent idea of what was going to happen. I was kind of surprised. Were you? I, and I thought it was wrong. He was he was booed basically every time. He was. He was booed every time. Yeah. Um. I. I don't. Maybe I. Because I was watching it on TV, um, on a cell phone from Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, maybe I missed it, but I don't think he made any kind of gestures towards Oregon nope. or the stands. Nope. I don't think he did any kind of extra celebrations nope. um, that could maybe warrant stuff like that. But this is a guy who started three years at Oregon, was pivotal in Oregon's run to the national championship game, mm-hmm. um, pivotal in Oregon's resurgence in 2015 as a sophomore when he came off his NCAA suspension uh, that second half of that season. 
to get Oregon to the Holiday Bowl. I mean, get to the Alamo Bowl. And then last season was Oregon's best receiver uh, with with Justin Herbert and Dakota Prukop at quarterback. He had his issues. Yeah. He has he had run-ins with the law. He had really dumb comments on Twitter. Um, he had his drug issues. Um, but I just felt like he's not a professional athlete. He's still you know 23 years old, 22 years old, five years removed from high school. Yeah. There was no reason to boo. Darren Kenton. I, I I never fully understand why teams do this. I know when, I remember when the Blazers, when Alorcas Aldridge came back, he was received with similar you know crowd response. Um, and I understand it's diff, it's frustrating, and, and fans are very emotionally tied to the team. And and obviously, if Carrington is on this team, the roster looks different, the team looks different. I'm not sure if the results are all that different because without Justin Herbert, I'm not sure who would have gotten him the ball. But certainly. Watching Darren Carrington play you on Saturday, you, you remember how talented of a receiver he is and how big of a loss he was to the football team. But like you said, he's he's still a young kid. He made some mistakes. He's no longer with the team. You you kind of understood from comments from Oregon players leading up to the game that while there was probably they were probably disappointed about what happened, it didn't seem like there was any ill will from them. We you know we asked numerous defensive players on on Wednesday last week about kind of what it would be like to go against him. And aside from Tyree Robinson's comments, which are mostly joking because they're good friends, they've grown up together, it didn't seem like there was any hostility. You know, we didn't didn't hear anyone say like, oh, I don't want to kick that guy's ass because he screwed us. You know, that that seems to be more of a fan mentality than a a player mentality. And, And yeah, I thought, I, I understood. Maybe if you wanted to boo him the first time or do something to acknowledge him the first time, go ahead. But it did seem like it was a little bit overkill that every time he touched the football, it was it became kind of the focal point in the crowd. Um, let's talk about Herbert. Yeah. You you saw him warming up. We saw him throughout the week. He looked really good. Really in good practice. throwing the ball. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, he took part in practices uh, that we were able to see through. And both of them was very impressive throwing the football. Saturday afternoon, he's in full pads, warming up with yeah. the rest of the quarterbacks. I think it was fair to say during practice, and then probably I wasn't there for warmups, but I'm assuming he was probably the third string quarterback taking the reps. It might have been the fourth. He was with Ryan Locke, who's the walk on center. So okay. I, don't, I don't, he wasn't, yeah, certainly wasn't one of the top guys. Tiger, after the game, said what regarding his, his he, status? He said he, well, he was. Jason Vondersmith in the Portland Tribune asked countless times, like, what, was he available for the game? And he kind of found a way to skirt it and finally said, oh, no doctors told me he couldn't play, which leads you to think he may actually be, may have been cleared to play physically, um, but they just decided to be kind of conservative with him in terms of playing him. Um, I, I, Everything that I've just kind of reading the tea leaves and all this, I, I would be pretty surprised if he's not the number one quarterback going into Washington. It just seems like... He's clearly very close to playing health-wise. Taggart made it sound like the doctor. I mean, if you if, if Taggart's being completely upfront about what he said about the doctors not saying it couldn't play, why doesn't he play against Washington? Right. That's that's that, that's my feeling on it, and and we'll, we'll probably get a little bit more information in the next hour here um, at Willie Taggart's weekly press conference um, at noon. But I, I would be surprised if if he's not the quarterback on Saturday against the Huskies. I think. This is, and this kind of bleeds into our next topic of the importance of this Utah win. Yeah. Um, I think the victory at Utah, or against Utah, maybe gives Oregon a little bit of cushion now because I agree with you. I think he's probably going to play against Washington. 
Um, if, if everything that Taggart has said is true, he's not being coy. Um, and coaches are always coy. I know. They're always, they're <laughs> always playing games. And he was playing, and he was certainly played some games on Saturday with those questions too. Um, I think he plays, but the fact that they've now won against Utah, they've now reached the five win plateau. And last week before the Utah game, he said, Taggart said that, look, we can't talk about getting to a bowl game until we get our fifth win. And I'm paraphrasing there, but yeah. they've now got that fifth win. They're now one win improved. They've now got a one win, one game improvement from last season and they've got three remaining games left. Had they not beaten Utah, they would have needed to win two out of the next three. They would have had to throw Herbert either against Utah or against Washington. And I, honestly, I don't know if that's the smartest decision knowing you need two out of the next three games to win. Um, just because you don't know how he's going to handle being hit. You don't know how rusty he's going to look. But now Oregon needs one game out of the next three. Washington certainly is going to be extremely tough. Yeah. They're heavy underdogs going into this game. If Herbert plays, I think that line drastically moves. Let's talk about that really quickly. I was really surprised with that line. I know, I know I'm assuming it's being set with the expectation that Burmeister's the quarterback. And if you haven't seen the line, Vegas set it at 26 points, which I think is the, I read the, the largest since 2004. Since 2004, the biggest underdogs Oregon has been in a football game. Um, I, I I was really surprised. I know I know Washington probably gets a, a bump for home field advantage, and I know Washington has lost one game this season, has has played pretty well. But I I think if Justin Herbert plays in this game, I would be really surprised if it's a four score game. Yeah, I, I would guess you know early on it would be more like a two score game, or or maybe like a thirty four to seventeen victory. You know, for for Washington, yeah. but a four score is just that's up there. That's a lot of points. I don't think Oregon's that bad. I think they've made some huge improvements defensively. I don't think Washington's offense is that good. Maybe their defense is, but I mean, with Burmeister and Oregon not playing well, they they were. I within, could totally see it. They, and, but they were also within four scores in two of those three games, and the game against Stanford totally got away from them. Um, but yeah, I. I, seeing what I saw on Saturday from Oregon, even if Burmeister is the quarterback, which I, we, we kind of are saying we don't necessarily think will be the case, I don't think 26 points. I would probably bet Oregon right. to, to match that, to beat that. I think Herbert plays, and I think this kind of this win sends a much-needed jolt of confidence, energy, juice, use whatever word you want to use, right. uh, into this program. It breathes new life into this program because... And you, you wrote about it, you know, Oregon's now gotten through that horrendous October and now has three games in November plus a bye and two of those are at home and they need two wins to get to a, they need one win to get to a bowl, two wins to, to win seven games. I think that's possible. I yeah. think that's very much in, in reach and I think this program can now finish strong, get Herbert back, win two out of your next three, get to a bowl game, win that one. You're eight and five. I was going to say, yeah. And your season and your outlook looks incredibly different going into next year. I was going to say, I wrote in, in a story following the game, and it's up on, on duckterritory.com, that the fact that there's, I would say, a decent chance Oregon wins eight games this year, including a bowl win, obviously, because I'm not counting, I don't think Oregon will have a hard time sweeping their final part of the schedule here, because Washington's certainly going to be tough, but... The fact that that's on the table at this point of the season after what just took place in October. Which I mean, they is, lost the most important player of the, of the year. I know, and, and but just the fact that it's possible is is pretty amazing because it felt like, I'm sure to everyone, that there was a possibility that they could win five games. Yep. And now the, there's, a, there's a distinct possibility that they beat Arizona at home, which is going to be more difficult than we thought. Uh, Khalil Tate's 
the real deal. Arizona's offenses look great, but um, they win that game. They beat Oregon State, and they they play a bowl game against who knows who and what day. But and they win that, and you're you're eight and five, and and there is certainly a lot more momentum going into into the 2019 campaign. And that kind of leads right into our last topic of the podcast, um, and it's the status of Willie Taggart. Right. We knew this day was going to come. Um, I don't think I was expecting it to be end of October (laughs) of year one when we'd start talking about it. Um, And and my deep down, my biggest fear for Oregon and losing Willie Taggart as a head coach was always going to be what happens if a Florida school opens up. Right. Whether that be Florida, Miami, or Florida State, one of those three, what happens if one of those three schools opens up and comes calling to Willie Taggart because that's home. His family is there still. Most of his family, he still has most of his relatives living in Florida. His kids basically grew up in Florida. Um, It's the recruiting base he knows best. We've seen that on the recruiting trail for Oregon for 2017 and now 2018. Um, A lot of his staff has connections in and around that area, SEC country. What happens if one of those three big Power 5 Florida schools comes calling? Well, Florida opened up over the weekend. They fired Jim McElwain. Uh, they've parted ways, I guess you could technically say. And instantly, Taggart's name is being linked to that job. Now, is he the favorite? I I think there's conflicting information out there. Um, we do know that Florida people inside the program are talking about Taggart. Is he their primary target? Is he their number two, their number three, their number four, yeah. five? We don't know. Certainly something to be very much aware of, you know, and the fact that this happened mid-season maybe gives Florida an advantage here where they could make a hire before a bowl game, potentially, which would, you know, be huge for Oregon to send them scrambling. Um, I, I think you have to be concerned because one thing, one report that I saw out there, it basically shows that Oregon's buyout for, for really Tiger is not, there's not a lot of money it would have to, you know, it would be exchanged in For an of, SEC school, there's, it's, it's very it's little. Very little. And, uh, and so he's, it's certainly susceptible. And, and like you said, I would assume the interest level for him would be high. Now, you know, it, Florida will have to make a choice if they want to hire him, basically. Because I think if they offer him the job and the, with a financial situation that's, that's in front of them, it would not be a difficult hire to make. He would make the decision pretty easily. You know, if he had been here at Oregon, say, for six years and he was building on, you know, and they were going to be competing for a national championship next year, that'd be one thing. But currently he's been here for one year. He's barely, he's barely moved into his house. You know, yeah. he hasn't really even been settled. Um, it's certainly something to be very, very concerned about, and it, I think this comes down to who does Florida target. Um, there are other big names that are being mentioned, as many with expect. Oregon connections. Chip Kelly, obviously, being the kind of the preeminent one, and Scott been, Frost is Scott next. Frost is another one. I mean, it, it, it would it, probably the odds right now if we were at Vegas that an, a coach with an Oregon with Oregon ties will probably be hired <laughs> um, at Oregon at Florida. Now the question is. Which one? Is it Oregon's current head coach? Um, yes, I, I think you have to be concerned. I think um, you'd be maybe even a little more concerned if Herbert hadn't been hurt and Oregon was, say, like 7-1 and one right now, and, or whatever, they'd be 8-1 and one right now or 7-2 and two right now. Uh, the fact that they're 5-4, and four, maybe there's some concern there. But uh, I... You definitely have to be aware of this situation now, and this is going to be one of those things that we're, I'm sure we'll continue to hear rumblings about until Florida makes a hire. I mean, I think we're going to hear about rumblings with Billy Taggart for any SEC-level job yeah. just because of the proximity to Florida. And, you know, we still got Tennessee that's probably going to open up. Yep. Um, 
there might be another school in the SEC that maybe Arkansas opens up or you know, Dan Mullen is another possible name for the Florida yep, job at that's Mississippi. A, that's one of the leading candidates at Mississippi State, and would take or take that job. Would take or take that yeah, job, right? Um, because look, this is college football. Winning is all about getting the players, getting the best possible players. All a majority of the country's best high school recruits come from the SEC, and Taggart has proven wherever he goes, he has no problem getting talented players for the school he is at. Yeah, and he's he's doing it now at Oregon. Reflective by Oregon having currently the number five recruiting class in the country. Um, something that's never been done before mm-hmm. in Oregon. And you put the resources that, that Florida has is comparable to Oregon's, but in a hotbed of recruiting where you don't have to fly across the country to, to get to these players. If I'm Taggart, I listen. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think you have to. And I think, you know, we're not saying Oregon's going to lose Taggart this year. We're not saying they're going to lose him next year or two years, but. Oregon has to be prepared that, look, there's some schools that come calling. If it was Mississippi State and Oregon, I would probably pick Oregon to win that battle. Right. Might require a bump in pay, um, but there's some schools that are better and there's some schools that are comparable from just program status. You eliminate recruiting and everything else is equal, and Florida is one of those schools that, yeah. you know, it's probably, you know, eliminate the recruiting aspect advantage that they've got. They're probably pretty equal with Oregon. And then, and then you have to kind of wonder what Oregon's contingency plans are in terms of what, what would be next. Obviously, there are a number of coaches on staff that have head coaching experience, right. you know, both the offensive and defensive coordinator. I guess co-offensive coordinator, Mario Cristobal, obviously has, has been a head coach. And Jim Lovett was at South Florida before Willie Taggart. So that's two coaches on staff with head coaching experiences. Is it as simple as let's hire one of the, promote one of those guys to the head coaching spot or do they go out and, I mean, I hate, I hate to be, I mean, I hate to be, I think it's very clickbaitish. Yeah. You know, but I hate to be the person, but I'll suggest it. You know, if, if Taggart leaves, do you go back to Chip Kelly? There you go. I mean, he's just as hot of a name at every other school. Why not, you know, come back to the place it all started? Um, but that's going to do it for us. Uh, we'll, we'll know more about Herbert's status. We'll know more about Willie Taggart and his possible interest in Florida. Um, we'll know Florida's interest in Taggart, more importantly. Um, later on this week, we'll get you ready for Husky Week. Uh, hate Husky, what is it? Hate Huskies. Right. Hate Husky Week. Uh, and we'll have full coverage of that big rivalry game. All, all three of us, you, me, and Carly, will be driving up to Seattle for Saturday night, 7 p.m. kick. Another late game. I was not very happy to see that. <laughs> um, no. On FS1, 7 o'clock at Husky Stadium. So, uh, Huskies, Ducks this weekend, recapping Utah again, the victory over the Utes this weekend as well, this week, and then also basketball. We'll, we'll you know, we've got plenty of stuff for basketball. You, we didn't even talk about the exhibition game they played against Idaho. Yeah. They've got another one again Monday night against Northwest Christian, so we'll probably have to get together again and do a podcast on just basketball related stuff, but, uh, tons and tons of stuff going on. You can get it all at duckterritory.com, and until we talk to you guys sometime later this week, We will talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks, guys. guys.